0: It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW Sitka. Today is Tuesday, March 9th, 2021. I'm Aaron Fulton with Raven News. Sitka police are investigating a hit and run that culminated in a fatality early Monday morning. The hit and run was reported shortly after 6 a.m. Lieutenant John Ashe says a witness observed the collision in their rearview mirror. Uh, The Sitka
1: Police Department received a report of a uh hit and run involving a motor motor vehicle and a uh, bicyclist on Talbot Point Road around the 2600 block. Uh, the vehicle left the uh, scene of the collision and uh, the injured uh, cyclist was taken to the hospital.
0: The bicyclist, 20-year-old Terry Carlson Jr., was transported to Mount Edgecombe Medical Center, where he was later pronounced dead. Next of kin have been notified. Using debris found at the crash site, Ashe says the police located the vehicle involved in the hit and run around an hour after the accident. According to an SPD press release, the car had damage consistent with the collision. Ashe says they have contacted the person of interest and the investigation is ongoing. When the Sitka Assembly meets tonight, it will consider how it wants to proceed with the sale of the Sitka Community Hospital. In 2019, the Southeast Alaska Regional Health Consortium bought Sitka Community Hospital, minus the building, which it now leases from the city to house long-term care. Last fall, Search approached the city about purchasing the property. The Assembly signaled interest in selling and plans to put the property out to competitive bid. A memo from City Administrator John Leach outlines three options for the Assembly. It can sell the hospital after a public advisory vote. It could also sell the hospital without the advisory vote, or sell it and hold public hearings in lieu of the advisory vote. If the Assembly chooses to put the sale out to a vote, it would likely come before the public on the municipal election ballot this October, but the election results would be non-binding. The Sitka Assembly meets for an audit work session at 5 p.m. tonight and reconvenes for regular session at 6 p.m. Raven News will broadcast the meeting live following Alaska News Nightly. Sitka's coronavirus alert level remains at low, according to the city's COVID dashboard. Between March 1st and March 7th, three new cases of the virus were reported in Sitka, though one of the cases is over three months old. A woman in her 40s, a man in his 50s, and a child all tested positive for the virus. All three are Sitka residents. Two of the patients received their COVID test last week, but the male patient was tested in November. In an email, public health nurse Denise Ewing explained that the information was delivered to Alaska from another state in an untimely manner, causing the delay in local reporting. Even with the delay, she said public health still follows the contact tracing process for each patient. Since the start of the pandemic, 328 coronavirus cases have been reported in Sitka. 294 of them were residents. As of Monday afternoon, five cases are considered active. Sitka's vaccination rate is slowly increasing. According to city data, just under 57% of eligible Sitkins have received at least one shot, and 49% are fully vaccinated, up from 46% last week. On Monday, the CDC issued new recommendations, easing some restrictions for fully vaccinated people. You can read the full list of recommendations on our website on the COVID Information Hub. Health officials are calling on Petersburg to maintain health precautions to get through the local COVID-19 outbreak. The community saw active case numbers drop over the weekend, but local emergency and state officials say masking, social distancing and COVID testing are still needed to keep case numbers from expanding again. Petersburg's active case count dropped to 39 on Sunday, including three days in a row with no new cases reported. The borough's incident commander, Carl Hagerman, reported on the status of the outbreak at Monday's assembly meeting.
1: We are seeming to be over the hump. Um, We topped out on active cases in Petersburg of 68 uh, a few days ago, and uh, we have been seeing a steady drop in cases since that point. So we're not completely out of the woods by any means, but the numbers do seem to be heading in the right direction.
0: Hagerman thanked the businesses that closed temporarily or changed to takeout service during the outbreak. The community remains at high-risk status this week. State health officials reported on Friday that between February 15th and March 5th, there were a total of 92 cases identified in Petersburg. There were four COVID-related hospitalizations and no fatalities associated with those cases. State epidemiologist Dr. Joe McLaughlin described the outbreak on a radio show Friday. We have seen clusters uh, in Petersburg that are associated with locations where people have gathered, including bars and restaurants and schools, daycare centers, and other businesses. Uh, About 44 percent of the cases in Petersburg have been associated with a bar or a restaurant and another 41 percent have been associated with a school or daycare. McLaughlin said transmission had been occurring in large and small gatherings between family members and classmates, as well as in a variety of public venues. Public health nurse Erin Michael reinforced that message during Friday's radio show. We really are discouraging those type of gatherings right now because that's where we're seeing a lot of transmission and spreading of this infection. So if people can avoid doing that um, and, and avoiding indoor gatherings, at, altogether is best right now. School has been virtual since February 23rd and because of spring break, won't return to in-class learning until March 22nd at the earliest. Classes for most of the school year have been mostly in-person until this outbreak. When it comes to invasive species, Southeast Alaska is relatively well off. Non-native plants haven't overwhelmed the area like in some parts of the lower 48. But as KSTK's Sage Smiley reports, the U.S. Forest Service still has to do a lot of weeding, and they're looking for public input about expanding their efforts.
2: Right now, the U.S. Forest Service is only authorized to try and control invasive plant species on limited federal lands. And they say that poses a problem.
1: Invasive plants don't recognize political boundaries.
2: Joni Johnson is a botanist with the Forest Service in the Petersburg district. And so if
1: we're working on controlling invasive plants, it's it makes sense to you know cast the net wider so it includes whole entire islands.
2: The Forest Service in the Wrangell and Petersburg management areas is looking to expand their efforts against invasive plant species. That means more area, more tools, and in theory, more collaborations. The Forest Service's current invasive species work plan is from 2013, and it's fairly restrictive. For example, the plan doesn't allow Forest Service workers to disturb invasive species if the roots aren't on land.
1: A great example of where it would be useful to treat emergent veds would be, let's say, the Anita Bay Road system on Edelin Island, where control efforts for reed canary grass are pretty much like 92% effective now, but we have... A beaver, palustrine system that is chock full of reed canary
2: grass. Palustrine just means marshy area.
1: If we're not controlling that, then there's, well, two things. One, riparian condition is impacted. But also, then there's a seed source for recolonizing and reinfesting.
2: Riparian condition is the water-based environment. Basically, one of the things the new proposal would let the Forest Service do would be to try and stamp out water-based infestations of invasive plant species, which isn't allowed under the current plan. Treatment for invasive species in the Tongass varies, depending on the area.
1: Wilderness areas and the, the objective of maintaining a natural condition have different prioritization um, checkboxes, so to speak, as opposed to, say, the road
2: system on Wrangell Island. Up the Stikine River, for example, Johnson says the focus is reed canary grass, a tall, bunchy grass that can grow to nine feet tall and choke out all other plant life in moist soiled areas around streams, lakes, and wetlands. In more developed areas, the focus might be the small orange and yellow flowered hawkweed, which Johnson says often moves from wilder areas into human footprints, roads, trails, and campsites. Invasive plant species in Tongass National Forest can be traced back to fairly recent history. Some came with settlers and canneries in the early 1900s. Others came in the 1980s and 90s when clear-cut logging started to cause major erosion in the region. Erosion-control seed mixes brought with them an aggressive invader, Reed Canary Grass. Even so... We're
1: uniquely positioned to stay on top of invasive plants.
2: Southeast Alaska has different fire patterns and less human development than our neighbors down south. Johnson says the Forest Service wants to get their more aggressive invasive species mitigation plan approved, so they have more ability to detect invasive species populations early. However, the plan isn't entirely without concern. The brunt of the Forest Service's proposed invasive species mitigation relies on herbicides, which have varying effects on soils, native plant life, and aquatic environments. The 2013 original work plan saw some pushback about using toxic chemicals. So did the draft version of this proposed plan.
1: Herbicides are always going to be an issue, as they should be, you know, as people are critically evaluating what's being used and how it's
2: being used. Johnson says that's where the public comes in. The Forest Service encourages public comment on the scope and effects of invasive species mitigation. Wrangell's local tribe will review the proposal at their council meeting on Tuesday. Johnson also says she hopes folks will take this comment period as an opportunity to let the Forest Service know where they're seeing potential areas for treatment and control of invasive species.
1: I'm hoping that also, you know, folks will be, you know, more aware too, especially say up the Stikine River. Um, Just noting where they're seeing reed canary grass or orange hawkweed or yellow hawkweed.
2: Pictures of some of the invasive species in southeast Alaska, as well as the project proposal for invasive species management in the Wrangell-Petersburg management area, can be found at kstk.org. The public comment period for the proposed Wrangell-Petersburg invasive plant management project opened Friday, March 5th. Comments can be dropped off at either the Wrangle or Petersburg Ranger stations or submitted online. The deadline to comment is April 4th. In Wrangle, I'm Sage Smiley.
0: I'm Erin Fulton, and this has been Raven News.